Hello and welcome to the Stories About Autism podcast. My name is James and I'm your host and I'm a dad of two boys, Tommy and Jude, who are both autistic. Each week on the podcast, I get to speak to a special guest who shares their own story about autism. I speak with autistic adults, parents of children who are autistic and professionals who work with the autism community too. There will also be some episodes where I talk a little bit more about me and my boys, share our own experiences and answer some of your questions. So make sure to look out for those. This week, I'm joined by Jan Jenner and Tabitha Moynihan from Hunrosa. Hunrosa is a sleep consultancy made up of sleep consultants who are also psychologists, OTs, nurses, teachers and who have specialist knowledge in supporting families with neurodiverse children. Sleep or lack of it is a topic I get asked about all the time on my socials from parents desperate to try and figure out what they can do to make sleep better in their house. I know only too well how tricky it can be for some autistic or neurodiverse people to get good sleep and the impact it can have on the family as a whole. I've had many years of little or constantly broken sleep and it really wasn't fun. Luckily, it's gotten a lot better as we've entered the teenage years, but I wish I'd had some of the advice that Jan and Tabitha share with me back then when I really needed it. I think this episode is going to be really useful for anyone who wants to understand why sleep is such a challenge and what some of the options are to help it improve. And Rosa have some great free resources available too that you can find the links to in the show notes. I really hope you get a lot out of today's episode and that it's the first steps to better sleep in your home. Let's get to it. Here's my chat with Tabitha and Jan from Hunrosa. Okay, I'm joined by Jan and Tabitha from Hunrosa Sleep today to answer all of your questions about sleep and autism and how uh, I put a post out on on stories about autism page and was inundated with questions. I know all too well uh, from my own experiences with Tommy and Jude about how difficult sleep can be. And I know lots of you out there have challenges too. So Tabitha, Jan, hello, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yes, definitely. It's a really important topic. Uh, Let's start with a little bit, if you give us an intro about you and what Hunrosa Sleep is. Hi, I'm Tabitha and I'm one of the sleep consultants at Hunrosa. So I work um, as part of a team, um, Hunraiser is a, a sleep consultancy and we run um, NHS contracts and do private consulting as well. Um, and we consider ourselves to be very good at what we do. <laughs> we really love to help people with their sleep, so families and households. Um, so my background was actually in early years teaching and then I got into the world of sleep and have been um, practicing for some years now. Um, and I just absolutely love it. I'm really passionate about it. I just think when we can improve sleep for families it just transforms people's lives and it really does and it's just wonderful seeing the results that we get in in giving people support with their sleep and um yeah just I'll let to Jan tell that. you about Han Rosa <laughs> yeah so Han Rosa um gosh um well um I've been in, in the whole sort of field of sleep medicine since 2009 um when um so many more people thought gosh you know is that a thing and um, since then, um, we uh, we had private practice, but then uh, we've continued that on. But we also now work with the NHS as a provider um, on a regular basis to deliver uh, sleep services in the southwest. Um, and um, I just sort of uh, we work alongside um, a lot of families who have um, young people with autism. 
and I am just so humbled by the effort that families put into um, working with us and um, how um, they are um, I think it's great when we, we produce our annual report, as you do every year for the NHS, and it's great to see the, the results that come through on that. Um, every young person last year uh, resolved their sleep problem who came through our sleep programme, so you can't get better than that. Um, I have a brilliant team working alongside me. Thankfully, it's not all me. Um, and they're, they're um, sort of scattered around England. Um, and uh, we work online um, with families and young people to uh, to improve their sleep. We've got the Sleepwise app, uh, which is intended for um, parent carers and professionals as well um, to have a look at their young person's sleep. Um, it's available on the stores um, and it essentially uh, will guide you through uh, a sleep diary and then or if you already know how, how much or how little your young person sleeps, then um, it will guide you to resources that are relevant to, um, you know, to your actual situation. I think that's really important because I know from my own experiences in the past of waiting to get to speak to sleep experts from, you know, referrals and the, the, that whole time in between when I'm guessing the app cuts a lot of that out there's a lot of stuff you can be doing and like you said sleep diaries and recording totally. if, you know if you can simply just access mm -hmm. it today it gets you started doesn't it yeah, and knowing I... it's trusted resources as opposed mm. to just kind of googling online and seeing yep. what you've come up with yeah definitely we've yeah. also got the um on our website we've got the um they're called sleepwise takeaway cards and um they're mm. for specific scenarios and situations right up to um people um, of the age of 25 um, so you know from really from preschoolers right up to then um, and all sorts of subjects like um, uh, you know um, good bedtime routine as you'd expect um, but things about um, looking at someone's uh, window opportunity for sleep how can you make that as good as possible um, and also there's some aimed at uh, specifically at young people as well so there's some uh, ones for um, young people if they can't sleep because I don't think sometimes young people that come to us they really are worried that they can't sleep so um, right. you know sometimes it is that you know the parent is they've got to sleep but um, it can be the other it can be the other way around as well and um, those cards are um, available free online and they are um, actually they've actually been commissioned by the NHS as well so they're reliable um, uh, cards that um, are in use in the NHS and available for the NHS family as well perfect so I'll, all of those links will be available on the, the show notes of this episode so anyone listening uh, make sure you check it out there so let's start with I think probably the biggest question is why do so many autistic people, why do so many neurodiverse people struggle with sleep? I know from my own experiences with, with Tommy and Jude that sleep has been a real challenge over the years. I, it's one of the things I didn't expect. I assumed that when I had a child that we'd sort of expected maybe some sleepless nights in the first year or two. Uh, but then we'd hit a natural rhythm and, and things would get better. And I'd say probably the first 10, 10 years ish, there was a lot of, of sleepless nights, a lot of, uh, either going to bed very late, 
or waking up for three or four hours in the middle of the night. And it's, it was a shock to me and it, but it's something obviously as I've met more and more families and spoke to more and more people, it's something that is relatively common. So what's the, what's the reason behind it? Is there any science behind it that explains possibly why it's such a challenge? I think that essentially you've got to sort of put it, put all this in, into perspective because um, we know that um, 80% of people with autism have a sleep problem. Um, so that's huge. 80%. Uh, yeah. Why yeah. people, 80, yes. I mean, the, the, yeah. the research is between 70 and 80, but it's more or less 80 now. Um, it's coming up as 80. Um, mm. we, we're getting to find out more about sleep more and more, um, uh, especially during the last 10 years. The amount of research projects that have uh, gone on generally in the general population are huge, but also including the, this population too. Um, and um, similar uh, figures for um, for people with ADHD as well. So, um, you know, we know that that whole umbrella of neurodiversity, as they call it, will, um, you know, have sleep problems. Um, and therefore, um, we also know that, you know, we're trying to work out why, and we generally understand from research that, um, People don't produce as much melatonin, the hormone that um, we all have uh, within our bodies that actually promotes a good body clock. Um, then um, we don't, that, that, that it tends to be at lower levels for people with autism. And um, there's some uh, quite amazing studies that have been done on um, babies who eventually end up with an autism diagnosis. Um, and they have noticed from the get-go, their whole sleep structure is different. So um, really? I think that, oh. um, you know, we talk, um, yeah, we talk about, um, you know, there's, as, as, as Tab sort of alluded to as well, you know, it's, there's a whole thing around um, uh, for parents, you know, I'm, I must be doing something wrong, you know, um, I must, um, that whole guilt thing about, you know, well, it's obviously something I'm doing, you know, that that's why they're not sleeping. Um, and by the way, I'm, I'm a parent of an autistic uh, young person as well. So, you know, I, there's the whole guilt trip about, you know, that must have been something that I did. Um, but um, they know from the get go that the whole sleep structure of babies is with who end up being diagnosed with autism is, diff autism is different. So um, in that um, sort of um, whole area, um, there, we believe there needs to be more recognition and more support for parents in the whole realm of sleep. Um, that's why um, there's specific, if you look on the NICE guidelines around how to treat sleep and autism, there is um, specific guidelines around you must have a sleep assessment before you have medication even. Um, and an effective sleep assessment, not something like... Um, you know, maybe um, a GP or whatever could deliver, but something effective um, because they know it's a problem. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that there is, um, you know, that we know that, there, that, that there's issues there. The other thing that we address when um, we work with uh, families and young people is um, the whole sensory differences side of things. Um, and we know that um, I know when you're, one young person said, you know, I can't sleep when I feel fizzy and whizzy. Um, and, you know, I thought, well, that's very, you know, that is just encapsulating the whole thing. You know, it is true. You, you know, you know, if you're really wound up about something, you're not going to sleep. 
So um, what we uh, do, we have some um, occupational therapists on our team um, and we've also produced some resources for the team to use as well around the whole sensory difference side of things. Um, sometimes, I mean, it, it's great if um, uh, the family are working already with an occupational therapist because we can talk to the occupation, occupational therapist and say, what are the things that we need to put in place in the bedtime routine that will help with those sensory differences? Um, so um, whilst we have that whole debate about the melatonin side of things and the melatonin is low, you can chuck as much melatonin as you want at somebody. But if they are over alerted because they are sensory, mm. di sensory different in certain ways, particularly sense of touch and particularly um, we, we will work with um, the vestibular sense. So the sense of balance. So whether you know whether you're um, you're sort of lying in bed flat or whether you're sort of you know standing up or those sort of things, your sense of balance that affects sleep hugely. Right. Um, so we work with those sort of things and see how can you bring yourself down so that you're in a calm yet alert state to sleep. That's re really interesting, especially the it's information that I kind of know, but I think, you know, sometimes you have to hear it again to, to really sink in and the sensory side is, is something that, yeah, I agree is, is really, really important. I, I know on day-to-day -day functioning when my boys are sent more regulated in, in a sensory way, they have a better day and probably have a better sleep that night as well. So, so I can see how that's really important. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the, the M word, uh, that's something that I get asked about a lot. And I, so I think we'll, we'll start there with melatonin mm -hmm. and do you want to tell everyone, like I said, I, I get asked, I get loads of DMS from people saying about their child, not sleeping. Have I ever tried melatonin? Is it good? Does it work? Et cetera, et cetera. So should we, should we dive into the world of melatonin and explain a little bit about what it is? Um, I, you know, I think a lot of the time people don't know what melatonin is mm. or um, how it works. So, um, you know, Jan's already mentioned it earlier, but um, so we all naturally produce melatonin. Melatonin is your kind of sleepy hormone. I think it's sometimes known as the Dracula hormone um, because it comes out at night. So mm. essentially your um, body clock, part of it sort of regulating itself in terms of knowing when it's time to sleep and time to be awake is kind of run by the melatonin either being high enough or low enough to be awake so um, we need our melatonin to increase in order to sleep um, and that's melatonin the hormone is naturally produced in the body and things we, we can do things to help boost and encourage that melatonin production but as Jan already mentioned some some people particularly um, neurodiverse people don't necessarily produce as much natural melatonin as um, somebody else so um, melatonin that can be prescribed is a synthetic version of that hormone and that um, is what is sometimes used um, to help promote sleep essentially so it's not a sleeping tablet it's not like mm. other medication that is going to essentially sedate it's it's a synthetic hormone so I think that's really important to understand and you mentioned it's obviously a synthetic hormone and we all have it, we produce it naturally. So is that why it works for some and not for others? Um, sorry, I'm just going to add to what um, Tabitha said mm. as well, if that's okay. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. The, the way that the hormone works is um, it will 
um, as we say, reinforce the body clock. So, um, uh, and it will it will affect the body clock hugely. So, um, there are two peaks of melatonin. Um, if for someone who's you know having regular sleep, um, so for an adult, then um, there's a peak of melatonin um, as you go to bed, as you'd expect, um, and it, that that peak will continue into the early hours of the night. So sometimes um, you get um, people who wake up really early in the morning because their melatonin has just done its bit. Um, right. And that's, you know, as much melatonin as there is. Um, and then their body temperature starts increasing and they you know, think, oh, it's time to wake up. Um, there's another peak, which is mid-afternoon, well, sort of between two, three in the afternoon. Um, for some, it can, um, it can, it can Post alter. Post-lunch slump. Yeah. Uh, okay. um, and people say, yeah. oh, it's because I had a really good lunch. Um, and it's not that, actually. It could, could possibly be a little bit of that. But the main reason is it's because of your melatonin production. Um, and coincidentally, it's the, um, it's the most um, frequent time that there's accidents on the roads as well. Um, it's also, really? you know, very often the time that school run goes on. Um, uh, but, yeah. you know, Mediterranean, that's when they go to sleep. I was just going to say, yeah, is that why we produce that, that spike then? Because, you know, lots of people do have a nap then. I think um, if you look back into history, there are some, um, there is some evidence to suggest that, uh, in the medieval times, even in this country, we used to sleep in a biphasic way. So, you know, which is mm. the technical term for what, you know, having a siesta and having a shorter night's sleep. Um, uh, is it wrong? Is it bad? If it fits with your lifestyle, is there a problem? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that this is the conversation that, you know, we sometimes have with people. Um, it's about looking at sleep in, in those. If sleep is going to be easier to achieve, then then do that um so so yeah so that's how it works um but yeah did you want me to talk a bit a bit more about the melatonin as in the uh, prescribed version then <laughs> yeah I, I i think a lot of the the questions i get are you know is it safe what's the can i mm. how long can i take it for uh or you know it's not working for my child why why does it work for my friend's child and not mm -hmm. not mine yeah, um, because possibly that's not the reason your child's wakeful, I would say. Mm. Um, could be something else. Um, it's not, as Tabitha said, it's not a um, like a sleeping pill. Um, and, and, you know, yeah. by the way, sleeping pills only mimic sleep. They don't actually. Um, melatonin is, is probably um, one of the few things that actually reinforces your natural processes because it is a fairly natural thing, although it's synthetic. Um, for some young people with autism, yeah, they do need it. Um, do all parents want a pill to um, resolve their child's sleep problems sometimes when they're desperate? Yes. Um, and what, but what we find is that far better, and, that, and parents often like this better, is that, um, and the young person as well, because there can be huge difficulties sometimes in getting a young person with autism to take medication. Um, mm. Sometimes, you know, and very often we find that if you put in other things, then um, that can be as effective as medication. So we're not saying you shouldn't take it. And actually, um, in our NHS work, it becomes very obvious to us sometimes and fairly quickly that somebody needs melatonin. 
so we will advocate mm -hmm. for them and say you, this person needs a prescription um, but having said that that's you know if they haven't tried anything to sort of modify so in other words if your young person is really alerted and really sensory and all over the place and they wake up and go to sleep at all sorts of times of the you know the day and night we would work with you to sort of try and regulate that as much as possible but if sleep was still then after all that we've done difficult to achieve we would then sort of say well you know you need this this prescription now does that take a long time to achieve well certainly um we um from the get-go when we involve families in the work that we do probably by month six weeks you know if someone needs this medication okay um yeah and i haven't met a parent yet who's desperate for um who wants to give medication to their child long term and uh, to answer your question about um is it safe um it's not licensed for use in the uk in young people um so therefore you will get no. a lot of mixed messages on that um mm. so um you will get um uh, gp saying it's not safe for example but it's actually different there's not been enough research on it so it may be fine right. but we don't know um if your young person is on melatonin and it's working then and it's prescribed by because again if you buy it off the internet you don't know what's in it um that's the other mm -hmm. thing um i would highly recommend if it is working to get a prescription and use that as evidence that you need the prescription um but um far better to provide some sort of sleep plan which is what nice recommends um that we would you know advocate um and see then if the um prescription is needed but even if they are taking it on a regular basis i think that it's important to have breaks to make sure it's still working mm -hmm. um so maybe um if you know that your young person definitely needs it during school times short term time then maybe, you know, this coming half term, don't have melatonin, see what happens. Is it still working? Um, you know, do they need a lower dose? You know, we're always working towards seeing how we can bring the dose down. Um, yeah. And we tend to say, you know, the maximum six milligrams. If it's not going to work after six milligrams, it doesn't tend to. Um, so, you know, you've really got an idea then. But it has to be. I could go on um, <laughs> and it has to be relevant to the child's weight. Um, and there are, there's mm. advice around that for prescribers. So um, sometimes it can be a tiny amount that works really well. It's almost like a placebo effect. Um, but sometimes you need a really large amount because the, the young person is six foot four, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, so you do, you know, it's, 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 yeah. It's not one size fits all. And to be honest, you do need to know who's this person who's prescribing. It does know what they're doing. Uh, not, out, mm. not all health professionals do. And I think that it's um, it's understandable because uh, most health professionals don't have any training in sleep other than about half an hour. So uh, which is a yeah. bit shocking. <laughs> but that's the what you know, that's which what's is, on the curriculum. Only, in only, the, only um, a bit less than they have training at the moment. Autism, right? A lot of them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. Thing, um, the other thing when it's prescribed, I think, you know, the situation we're in these days, isn't it, is that 
the long periods between appointments so yeah you know that you might your your young person might be prescribed melatonin to try but ideally that would be reviewed really quite quickly like Jane said to make sure the dose is correct and I think often it's prescribed as a right let's just try this and then it's you know weeks or months before it's reviewed and so then the family are left feeling oh it doesn't work but actually it's perhaps just not been the correct dose all along mm. um yeah so there's that to bear in mind and I mm. think um you know what Jan said earlier uh, you know what the recommendations are and because the evidence says that melatonin is way more effective when it's used alongside a behavioral sleep intervention so like a sleep plan which is essentially what we do <laughs> um and I think again sometimes you know people talk about melatonin as this kind of save the save the day scenario which it might do but it's 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 going to be much more effective alongside a sleep plan and and you know we talk about giving families the tools they need so that you know when if the melatonin stops working or there comes to a point where actually maybe the young person doesn't want to be taking it anymore you've got the underpinning of a really effective sleep plan um which also reveals when you don't need the melatonin because the sleep plan just on its own is what's needed and, and resolves things so it's kind of i think melatonin is sort of put out there as this thing on its own that might fix everything and actually it's there's more to it than that mm. i suppose yeah. and yeah. i totally agree and i think that the, just one last thing um that i would say is just to bear in mind that there are um different formulations so um mm -hmm. basically there's um the liquid uh, which obviously is immediate release um yeah. then and that's usually prescribed for tinies um and then um there's a tablet form with equally immediate release um and then there's slow release which is a tablet form and that can come into um, varieties, the usual size tablets, and also for people with swallowing difficulties, there's a, a very small tablet, uh, which is relatively new on the market and um, for use in young people with autism. Um, and uh, it, by definition, there's not vast numbers that are going to be eligible for that because your young person would need melatonin in the first place, but also have a swallowing difficulty. Um, so that's those are the people that you know intended to. Um, to aim at. Um, but in the great and glorious day when, you know, we can test on everything, um, there are tests around to see um, how much melatonin someone produces. Um, but they're used in research only at the moment. Um, and um, they're just not available for the general public or, or even for us. Um, and so it's a very much trial and error. Does this work? Or doesn't it? And it sounds like a blunt instrument, but you know that's um, that's the way with most medications, I think. Really, true, true. This is true, and I think uh, Tabitha, you, you mentioned there about having the the idea was the melatonin would go alongside a, a solid sleep plan, and that that's what's going to give you the long long term benefits. So let's let's jump into that. I know. Han Rosa is very much about the individual and, and coming up with a plan for, you know, to, to the child or the person that you've met and, and their specific needs. But if, if we can generalize a little and, you know, talk about, uh, if we talk about the, the sleep routine and, and actually getting to sleep that, that evening time, what's, what's some of the things that, that parents and families can do to try and make that whole routine smoother make it um easier for their child to go to bed and, and hopefully go to sleep a lot quicker 
I mean, um, I was just thinking, James, I saw, I think it was, was it last week or the week before, I think you put a story or a post about um, the routine that you have with, I think, Tommy for, for yes. bedtime. Yeah. Um, and I loved it because it was so clear. So um, I think sometimes the less confident we get with our child's sleep, the more kind of all over the place things can become, mm. or we we try something different every evening, or we're not too sure, or we sort of wobble a bit. Whereas actually, routine is something that's repeatable and predictable. Um, and essentially, you know, we sometimes talk about this, the bedtime routine acting as little signposts to the brain that sleep is coming, or almost like waving a flag, this way to sleep, this way to sleep, you know. Um, and our brains are hugely associative, so every every step of the bedtime routine helps the brain associate that with sleep. So mm. when we talk about having a bedtime routine, we're talking about what would help our child on that route to sleep. Um so it doesn't have to be all singing or dancing. It doesn't have to be 50 million books a night. You know, it can be very simple. But the, the point is that um, it's it's repeatable steps that you can do every evening um, before bed. Um, we talk about not letting that routine become too long and drawn out. So I think sometimes children can become quite anxious before bed and before sleep. Um, and if you have a sort of two hour wind down bedtime routine scenario it just gives you two hours to build up in anxiety um so you know keeping it kind of succinct is helpful um for a lot of the children and young people we work with you know we we um often find things like visual guides um can be helpful um sort of now and next type ideas um so you might you know even create like a sort of chart that that you and your child can point to for the different steps and again it's just really familiar really Kind of a comfort that nothing's going to change from what's been planned yeah. and so that in itself can be really helpful um and i guess it's just thinking is this step helping towards sleep or is this step in this routine actually taking us further from sleep so um you know for one child like you know we've meant touched on sensory um things i think but um you know for for one child actually what they need is a good old bounce on the trampoline as part of their bedtime routine to just get some energy out or to have some of that sensory input whereas for another child to bounce on the trampoline you know 20 minutes before they're meant to be going to bed is like the worst thing in the world in terms of just stimulating mm -hmm. them so yeah. a bedtime routine has to be very personal to that child and their their needs really yeah, I think I can I really sort of um, reiterate that it's really um, it's really important to sort of just really watch to see about you see the things that calm your child um, mm. and um, and really try and put as many of those things in um, into that routine. But without it being hugely, you know, onerous um, and something that is repeatable in other places, possibly if you go somewhere, you know, maybe on holiday or something like that, you know, so it's not something really outlandish that you can't do. Um, you know, so if you like camping a lot, you know, and you've got to have that, that screen there for a certain amount of time, then, you know, is that repeatable in a tent? Probably not. Um, so it's about being, being aware of some of the things that, you know, perhaps um, might not work, bearing in mind that, and a lot of young people who are neurodiverse really do thrive off routine and real and, and reliability and no nasty surprises. Um, so, yeah. And also that thing around the sensory side as well, just taking out those really alerting things. So um, sometimes uh, we find that for um, some young people, their parents will say, you know, oh, gosh, you know, brushing their teeth is a real battle. And we have to make sure that they brush their teeth. 
um, and you sort of think, okay, if it's a battle, then let the young person brush their teeth and you have a really good go in the morning, you know, and then you don't get all that sort right. of, you know, cause, um, certainly a young mm. person we're treating now, um, he has a shower and he hates showers. So you take the shower out, you know, it's, it's sort of like, but I think because people are really hugely sleep deprived, they don't see these things. And, you know, we have the advantage of parachuting in and sort of saying, well, why you, why is that? going on then um we also yeah. have the disadvantage of parachuting in because we then we work with the parent and say well look this is our take on this what's happening what do you think do you think this is going to work with your wider family you know um so we work together in a collaborative way to produce something that will work for the whole the whole family i've got quite a nice um, example of a family i worked with recently um little seven-year-old boy who um He's got ADHD and he was, they were just struggling a couple of things with the bedtime routine. One, that just the amount of physical energy he had at the end of the day. Um, and two, transitions were especially difficult for him. So that moment from being downstairs, the transition to having to go upstairs to get ready for bed was really the killer because that was where the sort of meltdown happened because of that. Um, so we had a look at that and we were sort of thinking what his sensory needs were, what was helpful to him, what what they found in the past was calming for him at other times in the day. And so what we've ended up coming up with as part of the bedtime routine is that um, he gets the warning that, you know, two five minute and then two minute warning was about the right amount for sort of it's going to be time to go upstairs to get ready for bed. But then when it's time to get ready for bed, the way they go upstairs now is they always do it with a wheelbarrow, you know, where you hold the child's ankles and then they wheelbarrow up the stairs like on their hands. And when I like when I first suggested it, the mums just thought it was hilarious. But actually, it's worked really nicely because it's really helped with that transition because the little boy really enjoyed it. Um, it's giving him that feedback, so he's having to really work hard in his um, arms. So it's also using up some physical energy. It's giving him the sensory feedback that helps him. It's also actually really helped with the sort of connection and relationship between either parent that does it and the little boy, and also the siblings. Sometimes the siblings get involved as well. So it's actually turned what was a particularly difficult moment in the bedtime routine into something that's actually really kind of... Uh, benefited the whole family actually and um, made an improvement to just the overall relational connections as well between the whole family so I just thought that's a nice example oh, of where we great. can look yeah. at a bedtime routine um, and bring something in that's you know respecting kind of the sensory needs but also helping with those transitions and the bonus of um, actually sort of improving relationships along the way so yeah it's nice mm, yeah I brilliant. think that that seems to be quite a common thing of, of getting to that bedtime period and your child still having lots of energy still being you know bouncing off the walls lots of energy to burn and I've, I've definitely seen that with with Tommy over the years and you know he's in a really good routine now but he probably up until he goes into bed he's full you know maybe that last half an hour he finally starts winding down but before that he is full of energy um you know the, the wheelbarrow thing sounds great uh, is, is there any other other exercises or activities that that families could do sort of just before bed to try and try and get some of that sensory feedback and, and burn some energy? Gosh, I think there's a huge um, different variety of things. Um, mm. 
in terms of those sort of exercises so those those sort of stretching so for some young people you know they'd be quite organized with some yoga stretches even um that sort of thing um but you know um the the, the whole sort of push pull type thing um doing um you know um a, pl a plank sometimes you know those sort of pilates planks where you're sort of you no know, anything which um involves um what we know to be proprioceptive sense so you know it's that sense of um you know i'm holding my hand in a fist here i don't need to sort of you know look at it and see that i'm doing that i know and it's that whole sense of tenseness in all your joints is hugely calming okay it's a default mm. setting for all of us that's why we have things like stress balls and squeeze them because that is really really calming now for some young people perhaps those you know who uh, maybe they're wheelchair users or whatever then they will need to do that you know have that sort of thing you know i had those fidgets that sort of thing which will be calming and will produce that um that sort of um feeling within their body um and as tab said you know for that young person it's that whole pushing down um doing a wheelbarrow um, so it's the sense of proprioception all up the arms, across the, the chest. Um, all that's very calming. And even carrying a, a, a basket of laundry, you know, um, that sort of thing, that heavy lifting, the heavy work, as the occupational therapists call it, is calming. And so incorporating those sort of things in. Um, some young people, um, you know, they can benefit from things like compression sheets on the bed, which are quite stretchy. Mm -hmm um and um you know pushing against that um some young people may have um a weighted blanket which um you know again sometimes it, it's nice to use in the run-up to bed rather than in bed because you can get very very warm with them so um yeah. sometimes it'd be quite nice to just sit there with the you know and that sort of whole weight and then having to push against the weight um i mean for so that some parents who have i mean it's very often a go-to thing isn't it for some um, people again to buy a weighted blanket and I would say with that particularly as the, it's getting warmer just bear in mind that you know your body temperature can go up when you use a weighted blanket um keep, can keep you nice and toasty but actually um that's as disruptive as anything in terms of sleep we know that you know we don't sleep in heat waves similar thing um so um and that whole effect of the weighted blanket that pushing against it um doesn't happen when you're asleep once you're asleep, you're not going to push against that blanket. Um, so right. it's a good yeah. good idea. If, you, if your young person falls asleep when the weighted blanket's on, take the weight, weighted blanket off because they, they won't be getting any benefit other than it warming them up. And so, yeah, so compression sheets are quite good because they're breathable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tabitha, you mentioned my, my post about Tommy's routine. It just got me thinking there's actually a couple of steps of it that I take for granted are just part of his routine, but actually meet some sensory needs. Like every night he will sit on the sofa with mm. a blanket on. Um, even now, mm. you know, it's, it's warm. He doesn't need a blanket, but we'll both sit there with blankets on us. And it's that clearly is helping him wind down. Then he has his shower and mm. when he gets out of the shower mm. and I wrap him in a towel, he, we do two mm. big squeezes where I, I pick him up and, and give him a, yeah, a squeeze. Yeah. And it's just two because that's the routine and he finds it funny. And I always yeah. think of it as 
or it's just part of his routine, but actually, yeah, it's probably meeting a bit of a sensory need as well and helping him. Yeah, yeah totally. In yeah. Mm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah, textbook. <laughs> so, okay, so we're helping, all these things can help our kids get to sleep. We then know that lots of them have problems waking up in the middle of the night uh, and then potentially being awake for two, three, four hours. I've been there many, many nights with Jude back in the day where he would, if he went asleep before midnight, he would wake up about two o'clock and he'd be awake till five, six a.m., which clearly isn't good for him, isn't good for the parents, isn't good for trying to get to school in the morning, get to work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what, what do we do in that situation? What, what can we do to try and help our kids get back to sleep faster and just have a better quality sleep overall? Gosh, well, there's all sorts of things that could be going on there. But um, I'll just try and be hugely broad brush and um, yeah. say a few things that we find help. Um, certainly, um, you know, when a young person gets to around puberty, um, their sleep changes. And this is typically developing kids as well as those with autism. And um, they can want, they, you know, they, they may be sleeping fine. And then suddenly they'll shift um, to want to go to bed later, get up later. Um, and, you know, there's this whole thing around, oh, teens must get 10 hours a night. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Um, and something that we work to a lot is um, it's an, actually an American resource, but it is sneakily used in the NHS in, in the UK as well. It's um, the National Sleep Foundation's average sleep needs, which funny old thing are not just, you know, one size fits all, they are a range. So um, a young person may be perfectly fine on just seven hours sleep, for example. Um, you sort of think, right. gosh, yeah, that sounds very short amount of time. Um, you will know this because they're not tired during the day and they don't complain yeah. feeling fatigued or tired in any way. Um, so um, what we tend to advise is that, um, you know, certainly when um, and, and body and as the body changes um, during sort of like um, a primary school years, again, you know, there's a quite a bit of variability in the amount of sleep you need. Um, so it's just being aware that oh, perhaps they do need less sleep or they need more sleep. Um, but again, you sort of go with your everyday life experience. Um, but. I think that certainly um, for some young people with autism, they definitely need more sleep. And as you say, they wake up and it's all over the place. Um, so what I would say is that your most crucial time of the day, turn it on, on its head, particularly for teens, is the wake time. And it's about regularising that sleep. That's a horrible word, regularising, but that's the, that's the way that the, the thing that they use in the sleep industry. Um, so um, it's almost like the bedtime routine to an extent can sit to one side and all the pressure is off that end it's about the wake time it's about making sure that generally over seven days because the brain doesn't work on a five-day week and then a weekend um over the seven days you regularize your sleep um so that's the first go-to that i would recommend i mean there's huge huge amount of other things but um 
we know that by regularising the sleep, so say if they have to get up at seven o'clock for school, um, then generally that's going to help um, with this whole sleep quality if you then set that as the wake time for seven days a week. Um, perhaps have an hour, hour's lie-in on a Saturday, but don't sleep in. Because what happens then is that um, you get hugely short slept during the week and then you try and make up for it during the weekend and the brain doesn't work like you could. There are things that you won't be able to remember. There are things, and this is generally, you know, for all of us, not just for for this for, for these young people. Um, but um, if you sort of regularise your sleep, it's really, really helpful. And you will may find just by doing that one simple thing of um, then thinking, well, OK, they then need nine hours sleep. The wait time is seven hours. Work back nine hours. Oh, they need to go to bed at 10 o'clock. OK, so that's yeah. their best. Their... Now, that's not saying they they rush around until 10 o'clock. They have a chill out time for an hour, half an hour before bed. But that's the time they're in bed. And that just that one simple thing of regularizing it is really, really powerful um, and can act towards wake ups because you can't make someone sleep if they're not able to. Um, you know, there is that. Um, uh, the other that, so that's just one thing. The other thing yeah. I would say as well is that something that we do is, um, you know, we'll look at those wake ups and make sure that they can be as um, as if the, if the child is waking up, then how can we get from here to there? How can we help the, par mm -hmm. the parent to be able to help the child to go back to sleep? Because we know that everybody wakes. I mean, adults usually wake about um, five times a night and go back to sleep. We, do, we don't realise we've done it, but we do. Um, and um, anyone who's got, say, like a wearable Fitbit, that sort of thing, they'll see, you know, those sort of sleep stages with wake-ups, um, which is quite a revelation to some parents, you know, saying, well, gosh, they wake up, but then they settle themselves back down to sleep. So if your young person mm. is waking up once a night, okay, I would say, okay, that's great news, because actually they, they can settle themselves back to sleep the four other times. So, you know, right. what are we doing in that one time that is going to help them to go back to sleep that one time because they can do it? Mm. That's, um, and I don't, I'm sure, Tabitha, you've got heaps to add because this, this is such a big question, James. We need, <laughs> well, it, <laughs> we yeah, need a it, series. <laughs> I know. Well, the, the problem is as well, right? It comes down to the individual, doesn't it? And that's what you're saying, Dan, basically. You know, it's, it's hard to give broad brush strokes because every situation is different. But I think what Dan said about regularizing the sleep is just so important because I think one of the worst things as a parent being a sleep deprived parent is being woken in the night and just thinking I don't even know is are they going to go back to sleep at all is this now like a three hour slow you know you just feel utterly out of control and you know you lose all confidence in the ability to help your child sleep and I just think it's a horrible place to be and I think what's so nice about focusing on that morning wake time is with we're looking at what we can control not what we can't control because mm. actually you can get yourself tied up in a knot over all the things that you're not getting right um but actually yeah if you can just face it, okay but i can actually control what time i wake my child up um which just sounds crazy but as jan said that regularizing the morning wake time 
gives you something that you're in control of. Um, but basically the, the risk as well, um, as well as everything Jan said, is that when you've had a, a night where you and your children have been up for three hours, the, the, the temptation then is to have a three hour lie in and just to yeah. um, kind of compensate in other ways or to go to bed extra, extra early the following night. And that does the opposite of regularizing sleep. It allows the sleep to just free fall into something completely different. So again, what Jan said is just so important that regularizing the sleep keeps keeps a hold of it, stops the train from, what's the what's the phrase? Stops the horse from bolting, you know? Um, so I think that's really helpful because it's something you can feel you've still got control over. Um, and I think what Jan was saying, you know, we, we talk about knitting our sleep cycles together. So um, where you get these, these nights where the, the young person is awake and can't get back to sleep it's like there's a there's a problem there with the process of you know joining those sleep cycles together and I think just I don't think there's an easy answer because again it's going to be different for every child and you know I, I think James you mentioned um, us earlier when we were chatting you know sometimes it, it needed to be for example co you know co-sleeping is the way because you can respond quickly enough that you can settle the child and just they'll go back to sleep quickly whereas if it takes you five or ten minutes to kind of come around yourself go into their room by then they're sort of up and starting the day kind of thing so it's again it's knowing what's going to be helpful and work for you but thinking in your mind at all times what I do now is this gonna is this likely to make it more likely they'll fall back to sleep or is it going to make it less likely so it's tempting to I don't know take them downstairs and put the tv on and make a hot drink um just as a way a means of survival but actually those things are all quite alerting they're very pleasant and rewarding i you know you might argue that they're not going to help um with the attitude of trying to fall back to sleep so it's, it's kind of looking at how you interact in those moments as well but it's mm -hmm. so dependent on the individual i think so it's hard yeah. to give a brush stroke yeah it is answer. and i think um as well sometimes it's allowing the young person to actually um, you know, say, well, I know you're going to be awake, you know, if they're if they're able to be safe and not disturb the rest of the house. Um, here's something to do. Here's some colouring or some Lego. You can get out of bed. You've got a, a little pop up tent in the corner. You can go and sit in your your safe space. And if you need to fall asleep there, that's fine. Because um, bearing in mind that, you know, um, we also treat adults with insomnia as well. And one of the mm. bits of wisdom that we give them is. If you do wake up regularly, then don't lie there worrying because you'll never start worrying about family work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, because the brain's not working, you know, fully, um, we will say to them, go and do something different. Go and do something dull, you know, even watch telly for half an hour and then try and go back to sleep. Take your mind off it and go back to sleep yeah. after half an hour. Mm -hmm. um, and in that time, your sleep cycle, which is still chugging along. Um, and bearing in mind that these kids, you know, with sensory differences, they will probably not clock that they're feeling tired or ready for sleep. They'll need to have it pointed out to them, perhaps. Um, yeah, it's time for sleep. You know, do you feel tired? Um, so they might need some help from an adult. Um, but, you know, for adults, you know, we say to them after that time, try to go back to sleep, you know, because that's when your um, your sleep cycle is there and, you know, you're more likely to feel tired. Not when you've mm. when you've been up, you've woken up, you've worried, and you know, and, and for a young person, you know, 
oh, what's what's happened in school today? What's happened tomorrow? Oh, no, I've got that subject. Oh, I hate PE. Got sports day. Oh, why do they still do sports day? I, said, I don't know, but there we are. <laughs> Horrible things. We always get pet, we always get kids who get re- really stressed. You don't sleep because of sports days. And you sort of think, yeah. why are they still doing sports <laughs> days? <laughs> anyway. Just a plug there. <laughs> I, I, I was going to say um, as well, it sort of joins the two things together, the, the getting your child to sleep and then the, the how you handle wake-ups in the night. Because I think, again, it's sort of what you've already said, Jen, I think the timings, like, you know, when, when we're working with families, we always look at sleep diaries um, for lots of different reasons. But one of the useful things with sleep diaries is seeing those times because actually sometimes um, we find, you know, a parent has come to us saying, you know, my child wakes for at least two hours every night. And we look at the sleep diary and, and it's what Jan was saying, that, you know, the child's actually being put to bed inappropriately early. And so, you know, if you, if you have, if you, every person will take their amount of sleep and they're unlikely to take more sleep than they need. Um, so, if, you know, say you need eight hours of sleep, but someone's putting you to bed for 10 hours then you're going to yeah. have two hours of wakefulness in, in your bedtime period. So um, it is about matching that time in bed to your sleep need rather than the parent just feeling obliged to give a stipulated bedtime and sticking to that. So um, I think it's really difficult, particularly children that go to school because they come home absolutely exhausted and particularly, you know, if um, they've got um, additional needs or neurodiversity, that means actually they are exhausted. And then you've got this tension between managing that tiredness, but not letting them go to bed so early that then they're likely to wake in the night. So it's, it's a bit of a tight, tight rope, difficult tight rope to walk, but getting that, that bedtime right alongside that regularized morning slot, I think is really helpful. Mm. And, um, you know, we can let you have um, copies of a sleep diary as well to um, to distribute. Um, that's no problem. Or, you, or people can get it off our website. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd definitely be great. Um, you mentioned, Tabitha, about co-sleeping. And, and that's something that, yeah, I had to do with Jude. I think it was about 10 or 11 when we finally got out of it. And, and the reason was he was waking in the night. And like you said, if... I was in my own bed. By the time I got out and got to him, he was awake. And if I realized when I was sleeping next to him, what would happen is he'd sit up in the middle of the night and sort of look around a bit and I could just lay him back down and cover him up again. And often he'd go back to sleep. So that, that worked that, that got me and him more sleep more regularly than, than me sleeping in my own bed. Obviously, we get to a stage where we don't want to be co-sleeping with our children, and and I was lucky; we we just seemed to grow out of it, and it it worked. But I know for lots of families, that's not the case, and you know they don't want to you know they don't want to sleep with their child; they want to spend the night in their own bed, uh, and they worry that this is going to go on and on and on forever. So, are there any any tips to help with the, the co-sleeping side of things that that can recreate maybe what what they're providing? Um, you know, for probably about half the world, co-sleeping is perfectly acceptable. Um, and, um, you know, I was chatting to um, an OT the other day who was from China. Well, she's actually Hong Kong Chinese. And she said that she used to co-sleep with her parents until she was 15. You know, so right. um, there is that to feed in. There is, accept- But I, I do realise that some people really don't want to do it, and which is fair enough. 
I think the first thing to say is, I think, again, it's sort of social pressure, isn't it? Like, people make assumptions or feel judged if they co-sleep or if they don't co-sleep. You know, it's, it's a hot potato anyway. Um, but I think, yeah, we've worked with quite a few families where co-sleeping has served a really good purpose, but they've got to the point where it's not working for them anymore. You know, maybe the child's getting too old or they're just more and more fidgety at night, whatever. Um, so we yeah we look at different ways and again it's it, the starting point is is where the family are at currently and it's about what the goal is for that family not what we think the goal should be so for example in this scenario it might be that the family is saying just yeah we really want um our son who's 14 to be able to sleep in his own bed now um in his own room but at the moment he's still in our bed how on earth do we bridge that gap um so sometimes we um suggest the parent puts a mattress on the floor in in the child's room initially so that they can have that proximity and be right next to the bed or even they start by being in the bed but in the child's room and then it's about having gradual steps to gradually remove that so um you know you might just get them used to you sleeping in the mattress on the floor right next to their bed and then you could literally move the mattress very gradually further and further from the bed until it's out of the room onto the landing and so on um, and the nice thing about that is you can do that as quickly or as slowly as as you need to or your child needs you to do that. So you could take several weeks, several months. You know, if you know that that's your goal, but you're not in any hurry, then you can really take your time doing that. But you need to have a clear plan of what the steps are. So how frequently you are going to move away um, and yeah. move the mattress away. So you can do it very, very gradually or you could do it over a few nights. So, you know, it really depends. But it's that having a plan of what going from here to here looks like. So what all that middle bit needs to be to get from here to here. Um, Cause I think otherwise we're always thinking in these terms, aren't we? My bed, co-sleeping and my own bed. And we mm. don't think about, yeah, what, yeah what's gonna between. work in between. So yeah. I think the bit in between, I think the other thing is um, a lot of parents say to me, um, this is with slightly younger children, um, that they, they're just so exhausted that the child starts off in their own bed, but at some point comes into the parent's bed and um, or they bring them into bed in the middle of the night and but they just the, the parents are so sleepy they just can't quite you know mm. notice it really um and sometimes we've just suggested things like putting a bell on the parents bedroom door so they're sort of alerted to the fact that their mm. little one is creeping in and um, yeah. to come and get into the bed because they are that tired and they just need that ding 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 um and then they just walk the child back to their bed and just have to do that as many times as is, is needed until the child gets the message that um mummy and daddy's bed isn't isn't any longer the um the option yeah um but yeah there's it's sort of thinking about what's what what's doable really and i think also you know yeah. to alongside that um it's involving the child as much as you feel you want to or able to um yeah. and so that there's no uh, you know so they know what's going to happen so that it's suddenly like yeah. you know oh no what are you doing now um and sometimes um you know this whole graduate retreat thing um you know it can happen over one or two nights um or as, mm -hmm. you, as you say it can happen um over months but what what is really a good thing is to plan in some rewards within that so if you know, the child's done as you've asked and, you know, the next day, first thing, you know, give them a reward, whatever floats their boat, you know, um, but, you know, have something but so that you can use that as a reminder in the night, you know, you'll get your, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm not a great fan of star charts, to be fair, because star charts, um, particularly for somebody who's 
got autism, you know, what I do on a Monday night, is that going to affect what I get on a Friday? Probably not, right. you know, so uh, yeah. it needs to be something immediate and tangible. Mm -hmm. yeah. And also being clear with the wording on that. So what you're rewarding and what you're, because you always make sure you're rewarding the thing they can control, not something they can't control. So you, you might be trying to say, you set really well last night. I'm rewarding you because you didn't wake up at all last night, which isn't really fair because they can't necessarily control it. But what they can control is whether they come and try and get into your bed. Yeah. So you would reward, mm -hmm. you did brilliant last night. You did not get into my bed at all last night. So again, it's really clear, like like Jan said, immediate, as immediate as possible reward and very clear reward of what they can, they've got some control over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um it's really helpful the other one is social stories so putting together a social story so just introducing the concept that maybe you don't have to sleep in mum or dad's bed you can sleep in your own bed um because for a lot of children if that's all they've ever known why would they want to change that and why yeah. why would it occur to them to change that so things like social stories can be really helpful in those situations to introduce a new concept and um, I don't know, um, the the other thing that I would say is that if you suspect as a parent that there's something, there might be something medical going on as well, that just to bear that in mind, um, because we know that there's a real crossover with autism and um, sleep apnea, so difficulty in breathing at night, but also um, restless legs as well. Um, so the child there will sort of be, you know, complaining that their legs feel itchy. So um, just just to sort of, you know, you can you can go to your GP with those sort of concerns. So, um, and also for sleep apnea, um, you can ask the dentist to have a look in their throat and see if, you know, there might be something else going on. Um, so just to flag that, because, you know, um, we obviously check it pretty much from the get-go, don't we, Tabs, when we, we, yeah. um, we work with our, our NHS uh, patients. But, um, uh, you know, it's just something to flag that it could be something else. So, um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think we we assume because we talk to other parents and, and find out that autistic children have sleep problems and assume that that's the reason when, yeah, that there might be a medical side to it as well. A mm. um, couple more questions. Uh, try and make them quick for you. Uh, seasonal changes and the changing of clocks going forwards or backwards or, you know, the night's getting lighter and darker. How How can we help? manage that so i know that can be a real problem with 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 families yeah i think we we did a really neat um handout on this didn't we tabs um, yeah i was gonna say i think we've got handouts for both clock changes yeah so we, really. can we, can those. Let, we can let <laughs> we you have those we'll send you those as yeah. well yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but it's it's sort of like fairly um you can you can sort of uh work with your child so if they they will you know, do do a sort of complete change from the get go. Um, it depends on the age of the child, um, but generally, um, you know, when we go, um, you know, the, when we get an extra hour in the um, the autumn, it's it's sort of almost like a relief, isn't it, for a lot of, um, particularly for teens, I think, um, sort of, you know, that help plays to the, um, you know, the good old GMT plays to that sort of later body clock. So it's not mm. so tricky. It's the um, it's the springtime, you know, where you have yeah. to you know, lose an hour. Um, yeah. It can be difficult. Yeah. And I think that it's about sort of a few days beforehand starting to shift the, that bedtime routine mm. and the wake time as well slightly. If um, if you want to do it in a very sort of gradual way, it's 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 helpful. OK, so planning ahead and 
and trying to yeah yeah and, and I suppose yeah and the um I was just thinking you know a lot of families at the moment are saying to me oh, it's so hard to convince my child to go to bed when it's really light outside mm. and then they wake up four in the morning and it's light outside of course they want to start the day um so again that's where you know we talked right at the beginning about um with bedtime routine like associations and signals to the brain um so you know just thinking about what you can signal to them that indicates nighttime so you know the curtains are drawn all the lights are switched off you know so give, point out the other things that indicate that it's nighttime as well and of course making sure the bedroom the sleep environment is as conducive to a nighttime of sleep as possible so blackout blinds blackout curtains yeah i don't know masking tape so i've heard of people gaffer taping around the edges to get every last slither of light out um so, you know, and really clear signals. So um, in the winter, the opposite of that is in the winter, it's really important that we turn all the lights on in the morning and give the brain a really clear signal that daytime has started because actually some of us are getting up before it's light. So um, when it's daytime, the lights are on, there's noise, mum or dad are happy to see you, they're engaged. Nighttime, everything's dark, things are quiet. Mum and dad become robot mum and dad. You know, nighttime is for sleep, daytime is for wakefulness. So all those kind of signals and messaging we can give can really help with that as well. And what about us as parents who obviously we're talking here about our sleep routines being disturbed by our kids and, and, and them being up in the night. But sometimes we struggle with sleep even when our kids are sleeping, either because we're so used to a disturbed routine or maybe the stress and worries of of, of life are, are on our mind and we're, we're struggling to sleep because we're, we're worrying about the future and, or thinking about how hard the day's been. What, what are some general tips for us as parents, uh, neuro, neurodiverse or not that, that could help improve our sleep? Um, well, I mean, certainly, um, it's a bit more of the same, really, uh, the, the good old mm. regularizing your sleep, I think is, is really important. Um, so, really making sure that you you stick to your wake time i know you will with your 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 uh, young person so um and if you have a lie-in and you, you work nine to five on a you know well, not nine to five, you, you work in the week um and you have your weekends off then obviously bear in mind that if you are going to have a lie-in try and have a lie-in on a saturday rather than a sunday because um if you have a lie-in on a sunday then it's going to make it very difficult to fall asleep at the right time and then get up at the right time. So, you know, just, just to bear those sort of things in mind. Um, I'd also say that um, things like um, if uh, you wake in the night, I've mentioned it, you know, if you wake in the night, find, just try and make a really cosy nest for yourself for about half an hour, uh, whether that's with a book or um, uh, somebody said that they found the ironing dull. So they went and did the ironing, but it's got to be really with no purpose. You've not got to sort of sit there and think, oh, yay, I've just got rid of the ironing basket. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, you know, I think that I mean, is purgatory, actually, I think that, but there we go. Anyway, um, but um uh, you know, perhaps watch a TV program for half an hour. Some of the, you know, the sort of the comedy programs are half an hour long. So just watch something that'll take your mind off it, then try and go back to sleep. Um, but it is quite a common thing that if you've had disturbed sleep over years, then, you know, you could very well end up developing insomnia. And um, certainly um, we treat um, a lot of uh, ladies who are experiencing the, the menopause. So again, um, you know, perhaps um, uh, talking to your GP about HRT and things like that is helpful too. So it's sort of looking in the broader sort of sense of what might be going on 
um, with you. Um, and the other thing is having a worry time. So if you are worried about things, treat yourself to a worry time. Usually after lunchtime, just for about 10 minutes, just plan your worries out. What is the worry? Can you plan it out? Can you get some control on this? Um, just having that worry time research indicates that it, it really helps because you can then when you wake up and your mind goes to inevitably, you know, oh, that dreadful thing, that dreadful scenario um, or what happened earlier or what's going to happen tomorrow. You can say, no, I've got my worry time and I'll deal with it then. You know, so right. it's having mm -hmm. that is helpful, too. Sorry, we certainly um, recommend that for some young people as well. You know, sort of their cognitive functioning is OK, you know. Um, yeah. Just planning out those those, those worries, sort of, um, and um, the whole thing around um, uh, in school, you know, perhaps having a quiet time in school after lunch. Um, again, research has indicated that that is hugely beneficial for academic scores as well. So, um, you know, it's all, it's all a bit of a win, really. I suppose as well, I think, for parents um, struggling with their sleep is, you know, notorious we're notorious for just like not worrying about ourselves aren't we in terms of not looking mm -hmm. after ourselves so it's very easy to be hyper vigilant for your child's sleep about doing all the right things and then as the parent we don't make time to exercise or to get outside in nature or to do our worrying or to um unwind because we've got a thousand jobs we have to get done before we go to bed or we go on our phones in bed you know all the things that we know not to do for our children that we don't prioritize for ourselves so I suppose you know it's a good reminder to just be really kind to yourself as a parent and um make sure you're looking after yourself to do all you can to promote better sleep and I think it's easy to just let that fall by the wayside when you've got lots on your plate so remembering to sort of look after yourself that will have a good impact on your sleep as well yeah I I definitely see an improvement in my sleep uh when I exercise when I go to the gym when I go get outside and walk you know go for walks mm. getting to sleep then doesn't ever seem to be a problem it's the it's when the wake-ups occur in the night then getting back to sleep even if uh judah tommy have gone back to sleep or my dad has gone back to sleep mm. it's then me getting back to sleep it, it's like i've had that wake up and i'm alert because i've had to do something it's not just roll over and go back. I've had to get out of bed, do something, mm. settle down, yeah. come back to bed. And then, yeah, my mind's racing my, you know, and that that's what I definitely struggle with. I think that there's definitely mm. things you can do. Um, and there are two, two schools of thought, basically very broad brush mm. um, in that scenario where um, if you lie in bed, then you can do things like um, progressive mu muscle relaxation. There's also um, breathing techniques that you can use. Um, you know, some people have said, you know, blow a candle out seven times, and then you don't you don't remember the seventh time seventh time because you've right. fallen asleep because it's sort of really you know if you think you you extend that breath out yeah. seven times, um, then you know it's um, not no you really but just a slow long breath out. Um, then that's very helpful sometimes. Um, but learning to do things like progressive muscle relaxation, perhaps in the daytime, so that then when you're half asleep, you can do that um, is helpful. Um, so, yeah, so there's those that want to stay in bed. There's others that, you know, as I say, you clock that you're not going to sleep. And right, what can I do? Where can I go? My 
and I'm going to try to go to sleep again in half an hour when I've calmed down, when I'm, you know, perhaps no, not so alert because everyone's gone back to sleep. Um, so it's sort of having that space. And sometimes once you've overcome that wakefulness, it's just having that space in the room to say, that's my space where I go to sleep if mm. I wake. Um, and bearing in mind as well that everyone has poor night's sleep now and again. So, you know, um, it's about, but if you've got that regularity going on, then those are the really helpful things that you can do. Yeah. I would definitely be trying the, the candle one tonight when, <laughs> when I wake up. I'll be doing this with seven long, long breaths. Yeah. How many so, candles I mean, do we have to blow yeah. out? <laughs> I mean, we could, we could send the progressive muscle relaxation stuff to you. I'm not jotting these down tabs. I don't know. They've used no, well, so far. Well, I'm, I'm keeping a mental note of <laughs> yeah. which resources. Because um, we've got some we've... breathing resources as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've got we've got a breathing recording. I'll, I'll add them for, for everyone on the and it's great for kids as well, actually. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Jan Tabitha, thank you so much. I think this is going to be really, really helpful for for the community. Um, I think you've answered some you know really great questions. Uh, where can everyone find you? Where's the best place to go to find all these resources? Follow you online? Where should they go? So we've um, so we've got. Um... Our website honrosa.co.uk, H-U-N-R-O-S-A. Yeah. Um, we're on Instagram, um, Honrosa Sleep. I'm just gonna. We'll put the handle. Will you put the handle in the notes? Yeah. Um, yeah. Facebook. Um, like Jan said, people can can go via the website to have that initial call if they want to with us. Yeah. Um, that's probably the best best yeah. best and way to do it. Good old fashioned email. Um, info at hunrosa.co.uk and um, phone number is 01579 519990. Memory, Jan. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, hopefully, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure people go to your website, they're going to get, you know, there's some really good resources on there for them to use. Um, just before we go, is there any final tips you want to leave uh, families to, you know, what's the something you want them to leave with some knowledge that will help them either improve the sleep of their family as a whole, or, or just their outlook on, on the problems they're having. Um, I think it's important to remember you're not alone. Um, mm. And that if you think there's a sleep problem going on, complete a sleep diary. And I'm, I'm going to re recommend our app because it's all on there. Um, you yeah. know, a lot of uh, the, the tips that we've talked about, um you know uh are there and um uh yeah talk to your health professional um about having a sleep plan if mm -hmm. you think there's something really complex going on um and we're always happy to chat to you anything else from you Tabitha yeah I th I think uh well I was just going to say I just think know that know that you're doing an incredible job already mm -hmm. um I think it's I, I, maybe that sounds packed about that. I just honestly, every family I speak to with our work, I'm just in awe of what they're doing and managing and the parenting they're doing. So I think just know how brilliantly you're already doing. That it's like it's really normal to have sleep struggles, particularly yeah. if you have someone in the household who's neurodiverse, and that, that is really normal and really common. Um, but also that it doesn't mean it has to stay like that, that there are always things that we can find yeah, that can, totally. can help and to make yeah. improvements. We don't suffer in silence. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I think it's a really important point to finish on. I, 
again going back to the questions a lot of it was does it get better can it get better and i think everything you've spoken about today shows that it is possible and i know from from my own experience with tommy and june mm, it's very possible yeah. so yeah well thank you there's again. always thank stuff you, so you can do yeah 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 definitely thank you for having us yeah. thank you quick one before you go i really hope you enjoyed this week's episode if you did subscribe to the podcast which will make sure you don't miss any future episodes but will also help other people find the podcast too in the show notes you'll find links for the best places to find this week's guest and where you can connect with me i'd love to hear what you thought of the episode so tag me or dm me in all the usual places hope you enjoyed this week's story about autism